Discover over 100 episodes of Bartholomew Town on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. There's like a self-hate thing going on in Rhode Island that I've never seen any place else. And I've lived in a, a number of different places, but... I think Rhode Islanders need to give ourselves a little pat on the back. I mean, we're never going to be Boston. Fine, we can be something different. Welcome in to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. On today's episode, I sit down with the Providence Journal's education reporter, Linda Borg. Wonderful to sit down with Linda here at The Loft for a conversation on her backstory in journalism. Veteran of the Providence Journal, a reporter's reporter, and of course now established as the Projo's education reporter. So naturally we got into a discussion about education in the state, Linda's takeaways on new commissioner of education, Angelica Infante-Green, so lots in that area, plus a little insight into what the Projo may be up to, plus Linda's take on Rhode Islanders. So stick around a fun episode in just a matter of moments with the Projo's Linda Borg. All right, great news. Elmwood Songwriters Club, presented by Bartholomew Town, is back, held right here at the Loft in Providence, and the next edition is Friday, October 11th at 7.30 p.m. Now, this is a free event that features a variety of Rhode Island songwriters from different backgrounds, different genres, performing short, intimate sets, again, right here at the Loft. And the best part is I'm the host. Well, that's not the best part. The best part of that The aspect of it that's great is that I draw the order of performers at random. So you never know who's coming next. Everyone's on their toes. And there's always a lively discussion, refreshments, all sorts of entertainment for you right here at the Loft. And by the way, there's plenty of parking. We have a gigantic lot here. No meters. None of that business. Right off the highway to Elmwood Avenue to the Loft for Elmwood Songwriters Club. Again, the next edition, October 11th, 7.30 p.m. Now, the best way to keep up on the lineup and other details about Elmwood Songwriters Club Follow the pod on Instagram at Bartholomew Town Podcast. It's Elmwood Songwriters Club presented by Bartholomew Town, October 11th. And a great way that you can support the Bartholomew Town Podcast is to subscribe, rate, and review on your preferred podcast app. Okay, without further ado, my conversation with Linda Borg. I think what I think the Rye Cast and I think even the former commissioner said this, it was a wake up call. So for years we've been reporting that our scores pretty much were poor, but we never had the comparison with mass. So once Ricast came out and the journal did a pretty demographically fair comparison with comparable towns, every single town, even our suburbans, were largely below their similar Massachusetts counterparts. And I think that caused everybody to say We've known this. We got to do something. So suddenly saw a flurry of legislation. I called it the copycat legislation because people were just grabbing stuff from mass and saying, let's do it. And then, you know, bringing in the new commissioner, um, who's a real take charge kind of gal. But we've always known this. And we've certainly always known that Providence was a a mess. Uh, And I don't blame the teachers. You know, it's a systemic thing. It's un- it's years of underfunding. It's years of having what's called a thick contract and not having, um, not giving principals more authority over their buildings. I mean, this has really been coming and known for the 15 years I've been covering education. And this is also on a statewide level, you know, nothing new either in terms of there being question marks as far as what 
we don't have a regents exam or anything like right. that here. So what does it mean to graduate in yeah. Rhode Island? I think part of the problem is Rhode Island has always believed that every every town and every district gets to run their own show. So what we've ended up is 36 school districts. I think now there's 41 with charters. Everyone has their own curriculum. Everyone has their own different set of standards. So there's not one common ground where we can say, this is what's really good, and this is what we all should be doing. Um, the other thing, and I've said this a million times, Massachusetts 15 years ago put something like a uh, billion dollars into education. They went toward a common curriculum. They adopted a high, highly demanding test, and they stayed with it. In Rhode Island, every three years, it's the same old new superintendent, new commissioner, new test. We don't stick with anything. Yeah, flavor of the week. And I guess Lawrence, Massachusetts always comes to mind. Right, right, with, right. With, in terms of a turnaround. And right. And that's what, what Rhode Island, if they if Rhode Island were to uh, imitate Massachusetts, that would kind of be a target district. I guess, model right. for a district. The interesting thing about Mass, though, which we haven't done yet, and who knows if we will, they brought in a turnaround guy who had been in Massachusetts for years. He had been a superintendent. He had been involved in the Department of Ed. So he was known. He was trusted. He had credibility. Now, if they had brought in, and I'm not saying this is good or bad, but say they had brought in some guy you know, from California, he would have had to spend, or she, months building up the trust. But Mass was sparked by finding a local guy who could do the work, who really understood the ground coming in. Right, but fresh face versus someone who really understands right. the players right. and how to navigate the regionalism right. of, of the area. Yeah, I wonder if that challenge will will impact um, you know, Commissioner Infante Green now. If right. that'll be, it, I sat down with her about a week ago and right. seemed, getting her impressions of Rhode Island, in some ways you could tell she thinks like, this is ridiculous. I mean, yeah. who, what's going on here? The, the right. regionalism again comes right. to mind, the, 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 the kind of power-hungry aspect of people along the org chart. Right. You know. I think the one thing that's a cautionary note for me is the guy in Massachusetts, and I'm, I mean, at Lawrence, I'm blanking on his name, he spent months reaching out to teachers and saying, we know you aren't, that you are, you're not the fault. You know, it's a larger systemic structural issue. Teachers I'm hearing from in Rhode Island, are, and I think Madeline's story last weekend showed this, they're really feeling like everybody's pointing the finger at them. Mm. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, everything flows downhill. So I think somehow in this process, we have to make teachers feel like, okay, you need, you need it's a heavy lift, but we trust you. You're the ones on the ground. Let's build you up. So I do feel like teachers have really taken it on the chin when really it's been higher ups that have not done their job yeah long before any of this current like news cycle i guess right. where i'm thinking it must have been it was before i started the podcast so it was definitely 2017 i got invited out to dinner um i was living in newport with a group of people who were providence teachers and it blew my mind i mean people were you know not sobbing but there were tears and like hard to say words when your jaw gets like tough to move like people were emotional at this table describing you know, number one, the problems, but then also the burden. And these were young, energized people who definitely wanted to be good teachers. Right, they right. weren't in it for the money or right. the, the summers off or anything like that, very clearly. Right. So, yeah, it says something. At the same time, now I've I just spent some time with some teachers at the Green School, and boy, do they get up with a lot of enthusiasm and energy right. for their day. Right. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of question marks in right. terms of how to make it work. Right. Um, all right, so... Let's take a look at your run, you know, kind of specifically here. What's, where, did you, where did you become 
a journalist and how did you become an education I journalist? I totally fell into it. So I graduated from college in the late 70s. I can't believe I'm admitting this. And <laughs> there was a recession on and there were no jobs. So yeah. I was living at home in the Cape with my mom and I was waitressing. And she found a little ad in the paper that said weekly newspaper needs, uh, you know, part-time reporter. It was an old-fashioned broadsheet, the Falmouth Enterprise, family-owned, and they paid you by the line. So I would cover a meeting and write like 500 lines just to make some money. And I ended up really liking covering (laughs) local government. I got to cover Woods Hole, which is a great scientific community. So from there, I went to the Cape Cod Times, also a really fun place to work. And then the journal hired me, oh my God, 1987. And uh, I spent a lot of my career in the bureaus. We had a robust bureau system, you know, covering cops, covering crime. And about 15 years ago, I finally got to go downtown. And I begged them to let me cover education because I had always enjoyed it at the local level. And uh, I started covering um, Providence and then K-12. And now I'm pretty much the... The education reporter for everything at the journal. So college is the whole nine yards. Yeah, for sure. And when you examine, I mean, are you taking more of a long view? Because there are day-to-day stories in education, of course. I mean, you could could definitely have a paper of daily news in education if you had the resources, but in Rhode Island. Right. But, uh, you know, are you more focused on long-term kind of developing a, a way of thinking around here, or yeah. is it more a hard news, Dave? Than you Dave, know, uh, Dave news? before the Globe, I would say I had the luxury of more long-term, but now uh, my competition is so stiff, I'm really feeling. So I have lined up a bunch of stories that I wanted to sort of pick away at in the fall, but I think I'm going to have to just, there's so much daily stuff going on that I haven't really been able to recently dig into the the more thoughtful stories. If things calm down after November when we have a new superintendent, maybe then I can slow it down. But so far, it's been breaking news like just about every day. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that. The yeah. Rhode Island media market has yeah. shifted pretty significantly in the last year or so. Um, in some ways, I think you know the Boston Globe coming in is obviously the, the main change, right. but that has impacted other outlets as well. You, I think you're seeing a more aggressive approach from journalists in the field, certainly behind the scenes, and I think you're seeing what I experienced as a songwriter when I moved to New York City, when I moved to Brooklyn, was that you know you go and play to a performance and where you might be one of the, you know, in your head, you're thinking, oh, I'm one of the better songwriters right. around here in Rhode Island. You get down there and you go, okay, wait a second, I, am, I got a lot of work to do, and I feel like that kind of has happened in Providence. It's yeah. something that could happen in other areas of industry, too. I, I think what you're seeing is you're seeing NPR, you know, Lynn's great work with ProPublica. So you're seeing more partnerships. You're seeing The Globe, which is definitely driving us to look at newsletters, a Facebook page. Like, some of us are probably going to get our own... Um, you know, education blog or something to that. So I think the competition has been really healthy. And even though people bemoan, you know, the journal going from 300 people to, you know, a third of that or less, uh, it's forced us to be more creative. So back in the day, the journal wouldn't have cared about my going on a radio show. Now they're encouraging it. I think they're thinking about journalism in ways that are very fresh, you know, kind of branding a reporter for their expertise. And right. I think that's great. I'm, I'm, I'm game for it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that now, obviously, social media does it too, but the persona, the individual persona, you, you know, you'd always have that, someone you trusted by name in the projo, but I feel like that was more limited to television and radio where personalities stood out. Now I feel like 
you know, you have that rock star sort of reporter thing going on here all over Providence. It's really exciting to know that people are reading um, or even in some cases listening on NPR or whatever to, to people um, that have a brand besides right. the actual outlet they're on. And for newspaper reporters of my generation, that is really an awkward thing because right. like, I'm not really comfortable on Twitter and Facebook well, on Facebook I am, but on Twitter, which I think is my business side, mm-hmm. putting myself out there, we were always supposed to be behind the scenes. So this is a huge culture shift for folks that are over like 40 or 50 because we, right. we never wanted to be a brand of anything. And now we're competing against folks, you know, Ian and Ted Nisi and um, the, the new guy at Channel 12, their dad, Eli, Eli Sherman, you know, they're quickly developing a, a real persona. And I'm I'm just not even comfortable with that. It's it's hard for me. Dan McGowan and I jokingly, and I really hope this actually happens. We were saying yeah. we got to make Rhode Island politics and media tra- baseball trading cards. Like you, <laughs> like you open up a pack and like, um, you know, yeah. Alan Rosenberg right, ca- right. card falls out. Yeah, you know yeah I mean? that's like, funny. Yeah. But that's where it's gone to. Yeah, you know, know, McGowan more than, yeah, than anyone, anyone else. You yeah, know, he's really, been very savy about that. Absolutely, with his yeah. Facebook group. Obviously, yeah. Nisi with his Nisi's notes. Notes, Ian, uh, Donis, Ian Donis with his weekly notes. Yeah, exactly. Big time stuff yeah. there. So it's, it, it's exciting to see that. I think it also allows for people to be less um, brand uh, or less outlet obsessed or devoted right, and right. flip between outlets and, I hope and so. mediums because yeah. of their, their interest in topics or personalities. Right. You know what I mean? Well, if you had told me two years ago I would have had 2,000 followers on Twitter, me in my 60s, I would have laughed. Yeah. But, you know, I've tried to cultivate it and um, – I try to walk the line between my own thoughts, despite what some people say, and the facts. Sometimes I stray, but um, it's kind of fun being out there, I, and I, I'm enjoying it. What's next for the Projo from your perspective? I mean, there, there's still going to be a print element of it yeah. for a while. I, th- I don't think it's like yeah, next I don't year think that's, that's going, going away. away. There's, I mean, because there's, it's like our talk radio yeah. here. There's I, an audience. Yeah, I think what you're going to see is more of what... Um, you know, I hate to say it, more of what Dan has done. So you're going to see newsletters that are going to be geared toward specific topics. We're going to be putting out an afternoon newsletter of news. I think we're going to be doing a lot more podcasts. I always think podcasts now, um, when I'm interviewing, you know, the commissioner or someone like that. Uh, I think you're going to see us be more um, brand-driven. So they're going to really elevate, like those little stories they're running in Sunday's paper about this is this reporter. Projo people. Yeah, Projo people. I think we're really trying to do what TV has done for 30 years, and that's make us accessible, recognizable. As you said, you're going to look in the paper for Linda Borg because she's your go-to person for education in the journal. So I think that's the future, is being less the anonymous gray lady and more personality-driven, topic-driven, um, yeah. I think so, too. You know, just just gut instinct, that's where it's going to head. I mean, there's the, the, the dig- also making the website, you know, more engaged. And right, more, we know, have the ways to go with the website, yeah, <laughs> yes, but like we're working on it. Yeah, you know, we're as working a subscriber there, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, not to knock it. I mean, you get right. what you need, but right. we'll have some interactive graphs you know you yeah. hover over west warwick and it shows you you know where yeah. the triple e spray yeah. happened that kind of stuff i think know? because we're now owned by you know a larger corporation it takes us a while to be nimble but i know the, the like the bigger corporate mucky mucks are thinking about 
how to be more interactive. I mean, every story now that runs in Sunday's paper, they want not just pictures, but graphs and podcasts. So the challenge is if you're doing the daily stuff, it's sometimes tough to corral all that, um, those extra bells and whistles. But I think, yeah, they're definitely looking at that. Do you, um, in terms of Rhode Island, you know, what's your, have you, do you grow up here? No, I grew up on the Cape and went to college in Oregon, which is probably where I got most of my uh, politics yeah. from. So, <laughs> but I've lived in Rhode Island, uh, you know, since 1987. Yeah. So I've seen it all. Yeah. And what's your impression of the state right now? You feel like we're in an okay spot or yeah, is it overblown mean, some of the negativity or no, I, danger? I think there's something about native Rhode Islanders that love to sort of, there's like a self-hate thing going on in Rhode Island that I've never seen anyplace else. And I've lived in a, a number of different places, but I think Rhode Islanders need to give ourselves a little pat in the back. I mean, we're never going to be Boston. Fine. We can be something different. And you know, when I got here in the 1980s, Providence was like a dust bowl. I went to Boston every week and I said, this is, there's nothing going on here. Now it's cranes in the sky, it's restaurants, it's an art scene. Like, I have friends come in from out of town, they're blown away by the city that it is now. So I would say to Rhode Islanders, have a little faith. It's a cool place. Yeah, I think so too. You know, obviously the challenges are major, but why be so down about yeah. it? Why why start there? Right. And you know? when there's one screw up, whether it's by Ramondo, whether commissioner, everybody piles on rather than taking a step back and saying, okay, we screwed up. Let's learn from this. Let's like, like the cooler, warmer thing. That right. became like a meme for like six weeks. Oh, let's, yeah. Let's move it's on. still alive I mean, and well. Yeah, let's Absolutely. move on. In the grand scheme of things, it's a small, you know, it was funny, you know, the Iceland thing, but we, we tend to hold on to the bad and not embrace the possibilities, I would say. Yeah, even now with the, the uh, interim superintendent Gallo with buying this book this, right. that had religious overtones, I mean, it seems like it was just a mistake. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I've known Fran for years, and there's no one who cares more about kids than Fran. I mean, she's, she's not someone who's in there to get the next big job. She doesn't want to go anywhere else. She made a mistake. I looked at the book, it, you know. Did it have references to God? Yes. But she saw it. I talked to her about it. She saw it as an inspirational thing that would bring folks together. So she meant well. Right. Yeah, it's time to, to pick up the momentum, I guess, for, right, for right. Rhode Islanders. You know, so just I a guess little bit. my big concern is, and I know that pushback against uh, the new commissioner was inevitable. My big concern is this is our chance to do something really on a grand scale. And um, let's not kick a good thing until we actually see how it's, you know, let's give everybody a chance. I totally get that the youth and parents want a voice. Um, I, th I think they need to really articulate what that is. And then I think I need, they need to go to the commissioner's door and said, here's our articulated vision of our voice, but let's not be at counterheads this early in the game. Yeah. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the actual takeover yet. No, we so. haven't gotten to the plan yet. Right. So let's let's take it back a notch and try to be collaborative. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, it's what it, the, the commissioner said just yesterday, January 1st is when they should have kind of the plan right. lined up. This is a right. long-term thing. Right. It's not like right. this week. Right. You know. There's plenty of time to really, for all of us to sit down, take a chill pill and really look at working together, I think. Last question. Um, do you have any relationship with like interscholastic sports and how that plays into school at all in your coverage? Or I is, don't. Yeah. I, I'm one of those people that could barely follow football. Yeah. So I have, I have no good feel for sports at all. 
So, you know, I always felt like sports was overemphasized in Rhode Island. Right. I saw that like also another place right. I live where right. people took it seriously and went on maybe even to have professional right. careers. But here it's sort, sort of like generally overemphasized with the Red Sox and all that too. I think, right. you know, the obsession with the idea that, the, you know, Boston is this better place and that's where our right. heroes come from. Right. Like, I wish that could be diluted somehow. Right. I don't know how to push back on that. I think sports are great. I referee, right. I play. They're awesome. High school sports are great and all this that. Well, they're 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 not great. They're there's advantages and disadvantages right. to it. But uh, I, I agree. I think kids should have another option beside I'm going to be really smart or I'm going to be a really good athlete. Yeah. Like someone needs to bring those two together and embrace the arts. So I would love to see the arts elevated. Now some of the charter schools are doing that. Like. Tapa, Trinity Performing Arts. Yeah. Let's elevate the arts so those kids that are geeks like me when I was in high school could find a way to their passion. You oh, know? I totally agree. And that was me. You know, I, yeah. I, that's I didn't what play saved me. Yeah. You know, it was, the, was the high school band, you right. know, having access to that, which was literally in a trailer behind the school, like one of those portable classes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seems demeaning in a way, but it was actually great. All right, get away from this other world and go out into the music world. Right. But I always felt like there was a strain, and it may have changed or may not have, that you know, if you were somehow involved in the arts or music or that side of the coin, um, even politics at, like, in terms of being an agitator, that you were more like a weirdo or something. Yeah, like you were you marginalized. Were, you, and yeah, yeah. yeah, question, you know, is that the right group of people you should right. be around, this and the other, where right. you know, being around the athletes who may be, a, you know, or, or people who were devoted to go finish third or right. second in the class and go to Harvard. Um, that those areas were, were propped up. And I always felt, I feel like that that's a little chip I have on my yeah. shoulder, honestly, that still yeah. comes out every now and then. Well, yeah. Wait a minute now. I that's, think the state could do much more with the arts. They kind of took a back seat for years when there were budget cuts, but it's time to bring them back. Yeah, I'd like to read that as when you're hearing about education, right. like that conversation, yeah. you know, and something that I hear from tech people now a lot is, yeah, there's the entertainment and um, thought-provoking I guess, engagement aspect right. of, of arts, whatever right. level. But there's also, as we move into science fiction becoming reality with artificial intelligence, you know, one particular guy, big time in tech, uh, told me, he was like, it's up to you as artists to remind us where we came from and that, what we to need humanize to do. It. To humanize it. Yeah. Especially, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you saw, I saw a tweet from Ted Nisi that the Catholic Church is down some areas like 60%. And you know what? Religion, at least organized religion, is definitely not going to be as prevalent going forward, um, by and large. So very interesting stuff there that, you know, if you lose that mysteriousness in education, boy, right. we're all going to be uh, the Matrix. Yeah, automatons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As always, great to spend time together here on the pod. Remember, you may follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Bill Bartholomew. And look for new episodes of the pod every Tuesday and Friday on your preferred podcast app, BartholomewTown.com or RIPodcast.com. Send me an email anytime, Bill at RIPodcast.com. Until next time, I'm Bill Bartholomew. We'll talk soon.